This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sheila Shoiga and welcome to Ready To Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort or simply entertain you. In this episode, I speak to author and relationship expert, Natalie Liu. When you look at the things we're grappling with in the world, you know, loneliness crisis, mental health crisis, you know, all the various scandals that have come out over the years, uh, you know, high suicide rates, the list goes on, you know, the self-harm, all of those things. This is the trauma of this obedient past that we've had. People being something that they're not, not listening to themselves, not being able to have boundaries. And when you're so disconnected from yourself, then of course these things are going to come up. And so I think we are, maybe it is the age of autonomy, or, you know, is it the age of boundaries? I think we are getting to a place of where the self doesn't mean selfish. Yeah. Which I think, you know, we had a lot of those messages growing up. Like if you, if you, if you, if you don't want to be forced to share something, now you're selfish and spoiled. Mm. Mm. You know, don't be mean, don't be greedy, be nice, be sweet, be meek, be mild, don't be a slut, don't be this, don't be that. It's like, come on, can we, can we speak to her? children can actually can we speak to adults can we treat each other in a better way Mm. i'm a great believer that if everybody had just even a little bit more boundaries we would live in an entirely different world 
Natalie lives in Surrey with her husband and two teenage daughters and I've been a fan of her work for many years now. When she was 10, she came to live in Ireland and when she was 23, she moved to London to go to university and she has lived there since. We sat down in the summertime and she spoke about her upbringing and breaking up with her mother. Yes, you heard that one right. She also spoke about her book, The Joy of Saying No, which is a fantastic read. And I started our conversation by asking her about her brilliant blog, Baggage Reclaim, which covers topics like emotional unavailability, people-pleasing and boundaries. So Baggage Reclaim is going to be 18 in September. I started it in September 2005. So I was, yeah, I just turned 28 at the time. The wisdom of you at such a young age to write the way you did. I mean, it took me a lot longer to, to get to where you were at in your late 20s. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because you cover a lot of different topics on it, emotional unavailability, learning to set boundaries, heal from past experiences. But you wrote with such a wealth of experience at a young age. So I suppose for people to understand the genesis of Baggage Reclaim, I think we need to understand where you were in your life in mm-hmm. 2005. What was going on for you then? So about a month or so before I started Baggage Reclaim, a couple of things happened, which was I had been unwell with a, a chronic illness, an autoimmune disease called sarcoidosis for about, I'd say, a couple of years at that point. And I just finished a year long course of steroids. And I'd gone into hospital because literally within weeks coming off the steroids, the symptoms were racing back. And they were like, yeah, you got to go on steroids for life. And I was like, uh, what? And I basically turned around and was like, no, I'm not going on steroids for life. It was, I was very much a people pleaser. Yeah. And so I'm very with authorities, you know, like a doctor, whatever they tell me to do, you do it. Go on steroids for a year, even though they're going to like mash up like your body, wreck your teeth, wreck your hair, wreck your skin. Like, I'm like, okay, well, it's going to make me better. It did not. And so I'm sitting there. In, in this in this consultant's office, um, I honestly it was very cliche. It did feel like my life was flashing before my eyes because this person had basically said to me, "Well, you have to go on steroids, otherwise you'd be dead by probably around forty, you know, from Whoa. pulmonary heart failure." And I was okay. like, "Well, you know, you spent your whole life doing what everybody tells you to do." Mm. And so I walked out of there saying, "Look, I'm not a reckless person. I keep coming for my appointments, but I'm going to seek alternative options." And at the time. One of my close friends here in, in Dublin, her uh, cousin had been going through a chronic illness as well. And she'd mentioned kinesiology. And I was like, OK, I'll try that. I had no clue what I was doing when I came out of there. But I I followed my gut, this yeah. inner voice. Honestly, I felt like the no came out of me without me even realizing it was coming out of me when I was in there. And, it was so instinctual. Yeah. And at the same time. As me going through all that, I also had come out of seeing yet another emotionally unavailable guy or Mr. Unavailable, mm. as, as I would call them. Yeah. And we'd been seeing each other. And I say that very loosely for about four, five months. And it became very apparent that he was not going to be coughing up a relationship anytime soon. It was the same old, same old stuff. Yeah. And... I did a thing that I was not used to doing 
which is I confronted the situation. I was very much like, if I'm going to break up with somebody, I'm going to let it stew and stew and stew. Just let this whole thing just keep going and going and going. And then I'm going to explode (laughs) and leave this thing in a blaze of glory. Yeah. Like just torch the place with my anger, frustration, you know, all of that. And I was like, actually, you could just confront the situation and and call out the situation for what it is. And so I was like, what the hell's going on? And he was like, oh, you're a great girl. You know, all the usual. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm not ready for a relationship. I've realized I'm not over my ex. And I said, well, it's funny that it's taking you this long to flip and turn around yeah. and tell me that. <laughs> you know, while you're flipping, calling me up every once in a while to come around to my place. And I said, what makes you think that I'm the type of woman that would put up with, a, with something like this? And then as I'm there saying that, I felt literally like a physical shift yes. in me. And I went, oh, my God, in my head, I'm going, Natalie, you are that person. Who would put that's how he knows because you've done this when I've been doing this from from the discos in Dublin <laughs> as a teen, yeah, all the way through into adulthood, just putting up with all sorts of shite, yeah, from 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 different boys and then and then guys. He knew I was the type of woman that would put up with that because I did. I didn't have boundaries, I didn't have standards, I fell into relationships with guys I actually wasn't really into. And all of this caused me to have, uh, I, I experienced looking back what I think is a spiritual awakening where I had this realization that I was always with emotionally unavailable mammy's boys who are typically still attached to the umbilical cord mm. and who blaze into my life, promising the sun, the moon, the stars, a field full of ponies. They're very into me. They think I'm great, blah, 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 blah. And then... They pull back and the hot and cold starts and, oh, I'm not sure and blah, blah, blah. And I start putting up with all sorts of crap, even though I wasn't even that interested in them in the first place. And I was like, you're the only, you're the common denominator here. Hmm. You're the only person who shows up to every act, scene and moment of your life. That doesn't make it your fault that actually you've been in a number of pretty dodgy, I'd say some of them abusive Hmm. relationships. So it's not your fault. But what you do have to look at is what are you bringing in to every situation? And I was bringing in the fact that I hated myself, that I I didn't really think much of myself, that I was looking for these, these boys and then men to fill a great big gaping void in me yeah. that was created by the complicated relationship with my mother, my absent father, the complicated relationship between my mother and my stepfather. And so... That awakening, at the time I had a personal blog and um, I remember writing that, you know, it was called Tired of Men and Other Things that Drive a 20-something Around the Twist. Okay. And so I remember uh, saying, having, uh, ex- expressing this awakening, you know, this realization that I was having. Mm. And bearing in mind, I thought I was a weirdo. So I thought that there was just something about me that made me very unlovable, made me unwanted, made people, there was something about me that convince somebody who was available to spontaneously combust into being unavailable once they'd sort of got the measure of me, which is a horrible way to think yeah, about yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. And so I say, oh, you know, I say, oh, you know, I've realized I have a pension for emotionally unavailable men, blah, 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 blah. The amount of messages I got from people going, uh, you're talking about me. Mm. You are me. Yeah. Oh my God, 
I have felt what you're feeling. I have fought what you're thinking. I have done what you're doing. And I went, hmm, well, this is weird because I always thought I was a weirdo. And I thought it was just me that this was like a unique thing. And that started turning something in my mind. And within a month, I had started Baggage Reclaim because I wanted to talk about all the things that weren't being talked about. I was tired of the shitty advice that we were always given when mm. we were younger. You know, do you remember More magazine with the yeah. position of the fortnights? Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I loved all those Just 17, More, you know, all of that type of stuff. Uh, but a lot of advice for women was, uh, oh, you're not happy in your relationship. He's not treating you right. Because obviously it was all very heteronormative advice. Yeah. Um, put on some sexy lingerie. Cook him a nice meal. Just try harder. You know, make him feel wanted. Make him feel special. Uh, what about me? Yeah. And also... There just wasn't enough looking at what was causing us to be in these situations in the first place. Like, why do we have to make everything about being in a relationship? Why does it have to be about the guy? Also, how are we supposed to go through life if we don't actually love, care for, trust and respect ourselves? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. These are massive, massive questions that often we don't ask ourselves unless we get to a situation when you know, we've gone through maybe we know this is not working anymore or we've gone through the breakup and we get that time to really delve deep and ask ourselves after that, that last and I'm not doing this anymore. How long did you give your, yourself space to be and be on your own and, and learn about yourself? Because it sounds like you were saying that you kind of went from relationship to relationship. You never gave yourself space to just figure out who you were on your own. Yeah. So when I started Baggage Reclaim, that was like literally a month after I'd had that consultant's appointment and I started to see a kinesiologist. And so from September onwards, I was like, you know, and obviously factoring in the time when I've been also seeing as barely there guy, I was like, Natalie, focus on your health here. Mm. And so over the next several months, it was about eight, nine months, I was just all about Get, you know, staying on top of this. I was, and I kept going for my appointments and stuff. What was quite funny is like, I'd be popping back home here to Dublin or I'd be out in London or whatever. And I was still like, I'd be getting guys, like just trying it on about something. Guy barely separate like two days before in a bar asking me out and stuff. And I'm like, and he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, actually I just separated from my wife. Oh, when did you separate? Two days ago. Mate, could you jog on? Yeah. And yeah. what I realized over that time was that it was all about me having to say no. Mm-hmm. And I kept being in the exes popping up out of the woodwork. Uh, guys trying on various different things. And I kept being, it was like universe was going. Testing. Yeah. Saying, okay, so you say that you want to be better. You say you want to like treat yourself better. Well, let's see how you get on with this stuff. Yeah. Are you going to rise to the occasion? Are you going to do what you've always done? And there were times when I was raging after having to essentially set my boundaries and, Mm. you know, communicate. And I I would break down because it felt so triggering because it was obviously bringing up trauma because there's obviously trauma behind why we don't say no in the first place. And so, yeah, it was a good, I was um, on my own for eight, nine months. And to be honest with you, I was, I remember a few days before I met my now husband, I had briefly dated like this guy, I put my foot down with him. 
because he was really over like he basically said I was a numpty for going to kinesiology and acupuncture that there was no help for me other than steroids wow. and I was like you've been a doctor literally for all of a wet week who the hell do you think you yeah, are like yeah, talking yeah. to me like that yeah and I remember telling him all about himself coming off the phone and saying you know what if I end up being single to well into my 30s, 40s, whatever it might be, so be it. I'd rather do that any flipping day of the week than have one more guy speaking to me like I'm nothing. You know, I like actually my life as it is. And three days later, I meet my now husband. Oh, there you go. Isn't that amazing? You know, when you do send out that that signal, that vibration, that energy, uh, that no, you're not taking this anymore. There is a shift that happens and a change that happens. I remember, you know, a situation where when I was inhaling your content and I was going through a breakup, I remember um, I went on a number of dates with the guy sometime later and his accent was different. He looked different. Um, but when it came down to it, it was basically the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had a decision to make because there was an energy. Yeah. There was a something, but I knew I knew that it was it's basically the same guy again wrapped up yeah, and that was going to lead to a whole ball of pain. And I made that call, not, not doing this. And it was tough, but I was so glad I did because there was a shift that happened. And then in time again, the person that I met who is now my life partner and the person I'm so, so glad to be with is completely different. Exactly, exactly. And I think that this is something that I think we struggle with as humans, because I think a lot of the emails, you know, messages that I've received over the years, even sometimes people coming up to me on the streets, there's a, there's sometimes a frustration with themselves. It's like, I've, I've realized that I'm with Mr. or Miss Unavailables. I realize I used to settle for less. I've been doing the work. Where are they? Almost like I just need to do a little bit of work and then universe just like drop mm. somebody on me. And what I've realized is the same thing as you is that whatever you say you you need and you want, that's going to be presented yeah. to you. And it's not always going to be like, oh, well, I said I wanted this thing and that's going to be the thing that immediately arrives. You're also going to get the stuff that you've been used to doing before. And you have to make that judgment call at that point because you're you're sending a message to yourself about who you are, what you're about. And what you are going to be in future, like, are you stepping forward into truly being emotionally available and wanting to be done with this pattern? Or are you going back to to what you've been before? And so I'll hear from people and they'll be like, I'm totally ready for a relationship. I am totally done with situationships, casual, whatever they call it. Mm. And so the next time I see them, that's things. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, mm. I started seeing someone and uh, yeah, it's kind of like a casual thing. You're going against yourself. You're saying one thing and you're doing another. Yeah. And what we find scary is when we have to match our choices with who we say we are and who we say we want to be and, and what we say we want in life. And that is scary for us as humans because it feels very vulnerable. Mm. It's like, but what if it doesn't happen? What if it's going to take a while? Why don't I just take what's here? And you know that, that if you'd done that, that's just blocking your way to meeting your life partner now. Yeah. Like the funny sure. thing is, my husband was actually kind of in my social circle. He had a photograph of me from about two or so years before we'd met. And so we'd been seeing each other for a bit. And he's like, 
How did he have the photo? Tell me. I'd, we'd been, I'd gone to a uh, Halloween party mm. uh, for with a friend of mine, basically a really good friend of mine that I'd met a couple of years or so before him, mm. went to university with my husband, also went out with his brother. Okay. And so there was a whole gang of them, like his cousin, a whole lot of them all went to university. Yeah. And so I'd met them at different parties at different times. And so I go along to this 30th birthday party, which now... All these years later, she is one of my best pals, this person who had this this birthday Brilliant. party at the yes. Halloween. And and so we posed for this picture. He took a picture of my, he had a girlfriend at the time. And the funny thing is, is we met at exactly the right time because I had stuff to work out. He had stuff to work out. And I realized that I was not in a place to receive the kind of relationship that we have. Yeah. That yeah. we've co-created yeah. that we have built we've forged over the years i was just, i i want i said i want that relationship i was not the person to have that relationship before mm. that mm. and I, do you know what i don't think he was either yeah isn't that a really important point to make as well that you know and again it goes back to the doing the work bit because yeah you might have perhaps had something at that point but would it have lasted perhaps it would and you'd be where you're at today or not. So the timing was right the few years later. Yeah. And he, like like your partner, he is very different to yeah. anyone I, I've been with. And do you know what, right? We have to stay away from sameness. We have to stay away from that weird familiarity because that is actually a sign of our pattern. Yes. And if we go down that road, we're just going down a path that is only going to lead to pain. Yeah. Yeah. These are these are like these are big statements. You know, I, I can imagine somebody listening perhaps is the is where I was at a number of years ago. I mean, many years ago now. Um, and sometimes we don't even realize we're in this. This vicious cycle of, as, as you said, the pattern, we, we don't even realize we're there. But no. perhaps somebody will listen to this and go, wait a second. I think that might be me. I think yeah. she's talking about me. Maybe I need to look at this because the more I suppose we ask ourselves, where do these come from? So, I mean, the unraveling, it's a, it's a big, it's a big thing because mm. I know you've done a lot of work on yourself, but the why you were attracted to certain types of individuals really came from your younger years mm-hmm. and the conditioning of just, as you said, it's through the magazines and everything you're reading and that, that the, the social kind of pressure on the, be the good girl Yeah, I am like the quintessential good girl. And, you know, I come from both my parents, uh, Jamaican, my dad, you know, he passed away six years ago, was Jamaican Chinese. Um, My mom, you know, she she has a Jamaican, Jewish, Cuban, Scottish, God knows a few different, and actually there's Irish in there as well, background. And so you have that sort of combination of like if you feel if you focus even just on the Jamaican and the Chinese, you've got a quite a com- similar but also competing cultures. Mm. And then my Irish upbringing as well, because I, I moved to Ireland when I was 10. Yes. And, and you were here for years. Yeah. So I was here like, I mean, even when I was moved over to London to go to uni, which was at like 23 I uh, I was often coming home like every weekend because this was the days of when you could get the one p flights from Ryan. yeah 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 and I re- like I was very homesick like I I'd imagined that you know I was going to the big smoke you know in England I was like because there weren't that many black people here when yeah. I was growing up and I was yeah. like 
it was a bit fraught here for a while, sort of late 90s. And I, I felt like I needed a change of scenery. So I just imagined that I'd go to England and it'd be like, oh, look at this multicultural. And I was in for a bit of a shocker when, okay. when I arrived in London and realized that I really, really missed. It was supposed to be a temporary thing. I always planned to, I was like, I'll, I'll be in London two, three years. And, you know, I did that. And then I was like, I'll just work for a year, a year or two. Next thing you know, I've met my now husband, we've had kids, mm. we've been there, you know, goodness knows how long. But I grew, you know, my parents broke up when I was two and a half and I was a real daddy's girl. And I was devastated by their breakup. I mean, my mother always, and I think that that was a point of pain for her, but she said I was like a, a child who was grieving somebody who had died when they broke up. I seemed to desperately want to be around him and his family. And that must have been hard for her. And she married yeah. them, my stepfather, when I was, mm, I feel like seven or something like that. They'd been together from when I was about five. He's white from the north of England. So we've now got another cultural aspect sort of coming in. We spent a couple of years in Zambia where he had a job. And then we moved to Ireland when I was 10. And it was a, a, a bit of a shock because I think for the first time in my life, I realized that I was, I mean, I knew I was black, but I felt very, very black Yeah. when I yeah. first moved here. And I was already the good girl. I was already experienced a lot of trauma through yeah, childhood. Things sure. were pretty dysfunctional. Um, and then I come to Ireland and you want to fit in. And I loved it here, but I was also wrestling with myself a lot. And I were, look, we have a culture of shame here yes. in Ireland. You know, we were very conservative back then. And so it was obvious that my stepdad was not my dad because he's white. And so there was a lot of questions. Well, were your parents married? And I didn't know that was something to be ashamed of. And so with a nosy neighbor who invited me to, around for tea, like with, you know, oh, come have tea, blah, blah, blah. Oh, so were your parents married? I was like, no. Then she went and told my mom, oh, so now I know that she went, well, I got into so much trouble over that. And I spent the next, like, I don't know, best part of like 20 years lying and saying that my parents had been married because I realized that there was something to be ashamed of, oh gosh, that yeah. my parents not being married. And obviously yeah. everybody here at the time, divorce didn't exist. No. So I then convinced myself that, oh, I'm, you know, there's something wrong with me. My parents are not together. My dad's not making an effort. You know, he was very sporadic. You know, he didn't pay child support. The list goes on. Things were quite dysfunctional between my mom and my stepdad, even though I, I got on with him to a large extent. It was very tumultuous, my childhood. And mm. the relationship between myself and my mom, who I, I, I've ended my relationship with now, she was hard going yeah. growing up. And so you have all of that. And, and when you were black kids growing up in Ireland, and people know that something isn't quite right at home. It's just kind of adding to all the things that sort of make you weird. And so then you become secretive. So you have, I'm very fortunate, a lot of my closest friends are still from here. But you also have to keep them at a bit of a distance because you have to give off this impression of being good and you have to give this impression of fitting in. And you start doing things to make yourself fit in and to make yourself feel attractive and to make yourself, you know, feel like there's something lovable about you. And so that's where I just start looking for love in the wrong places, boys and then men. Mm. Um, and all that trauma built up in me. I think that that was, played a big role in why I had a series of mystery ailments sort of from late teens through to when I had this 
you know, autoimmune disease and even with the tinnitus that I've struggled with over the last seven years is trauma. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that I learned to avoid saying no. I learned to avoid conflict. I learned to be what people expect me to be. Mm-hmm. I learned to perform at certain things. Don't get me wrong. There were, there was, I was saying to a friend of mine last night, when, when you're growing up and you know that there's a lot wrong with what's happening at home, you're hearing things, you're seeing things, you're experiencing things that you know are not right. And yet at the same time, it's not like a horror show. You know, like when we were growing up, a lot of the, the horror of a terrible childhood would be that they're putting you in the, the, the cupboard under the stairs, they're locking you in the basement, they're tying you up and doing whatever to you. But it wasn't, I wasn't having a terrible time all the time, mm. but I was scared all. I spent my entire childhood being scared. I spent my entire childhood walking on eggshells and that continued well into adulthood. It's actually only by ending my relationship with my mother that it felt like all the all the me's that I've ever been could actually breathe a sigh of relief and say, finally, you've drawn your line there. Wow. It was like I had to apologize to my younger self. Yeah. Wow. That's huge, isn't it? For whole, like for, we all, listen, we all making these decisions and we yeah. all have our reasons for doing it. And I'm not judging anybody here who continues to have a relationship with what can sometimes be a dysfunctional and abusive parent. And of course that parent has their own stuff to deal with, but I've had to draw a line because I cannot torture myself. Yeah. Trying to be the perfect daughter when actually I don't need to be. It's not about me. Mm. It's like trying to fill a bottomless pit. Yeah. How is that received by her? Oh, to be fair, she's sort of, look, I've, uh, it's hard when, as as women, when we have been criticized a lot by our mothers, we become very critical of ourselves because it's like a, a point of reference. And you wonder how can the person who's housed you for like what could be the best part of, you know, nine, nine and a half months, how can a person who's housed you be so critical of you, say terrible things about you, treat you badly? It could be verbal, it can be the emotional, it can be physical. You know, I've had all of those sort okay. of growing up. Yeah. And then to you become an adult and you think, okay, well, things can be better now. And they are in some respects, but then you realize that overall, there's just still this pattern of a lack of respect and the sense of needing for there to be this sort of power and fear dynamic and so you can get on with somebody and then they keep cussing you out from time to time and cutting you off like I was cut off for four four to 15 months at a time over the last I don't know 15 20 years different you know it'd be fine for a while cut off again and so this time you know I get cussed out again said terrible things and I just went suddenly something in me just went it's time not doing this anymore. Can't can't do this. And then I, I remember I had to get a flight to Edinburgh that day. And I was in tears waiting for the flight. I was in tears on the flight. And it wasn't about, no, it wasn't really about my decision. It was just having that experience all over again. I felt like I was five. That confusion of things were okay a moment ago. How can I be like a lovely daughter an hour ago? And this person's like saying these awful things to me now and like sort of terrorizing me. So I was sitting on the flight, and I burst out laughing. I was journaling, and I was like, "This isn't even the worst <laughs> of what she's done, and yet this is this is the thing that's like, okay, this is where you draw yeah. draw the line." And so th- there's a grief with it. You know, as I said, my my father died six 
six years or so ago. There's a there's a grief of it, but there's a relief. There's not, I don't wish her anything bad. Sure. I just need to be done. I can't live my life trying to be, quote unquote, enough for anyone. Yeah. Because that's already setting this precedence that there's something wrong with you. And I think for anybody out there who has a parent or family member who has directly and indirectly communicated messages, there's something not right with you. Nothing's ever enough. You know, you came home. I got like 90% on the test. Well, why, why didn't you get 100? Or did or yeah, I got 100% on the test. Did you cheat? You okay. know, yeah. you've, you've told them terrible things that you're going through in life. And I've had that as well. And they've been like, I don't believe you. Or it's Ooh. your fault. For anybody who has had those experiences, the emotional, the verbal, the physical, whatever it might be, I get you, I hear you, and I see you. And we, we've been through a lot. And I think we've normalized a lot of things. You know, it was very normal when we were growing up to be like, oh, yeah, the Thomas go and get the wooden spoon. Like, <laughs> like imagine being asked to go and get the implements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah. in African Caribbean cultures, go and get the switch. <laughs> Why would I want, or go and get the belt? And then you're walking real slow to go and get the wooden spoon switch, whatever it is. Why would you want to go and get the implement that's about yeah. to be used on you? Like, yeah. it's, it's madness. We've yeah. been through some stuff, you know? And I call them the show pony parenting generation that were doing these things where they feel like it's okay that they cussed you out or they did the emotional or they did the physical. And then you're supposed to be like, oh, Thank you so much yeah, yeah. for doing that for me. And it's okay. There's, they're, they're, the, they're, they're the generations that don't apologize. Mm. They don't acknowledge. They don't apologize. And actually, you do need to acknowledge and you do need to apologize. Nobody's saying lick my feet. Nobody's saying be miserable to the end of your days. But do acknowledge the trauma yeah. of this behavior. Yeah. And I think that this is, I think it's, you know, one of the great things that I realized about Ireland living here, and I think in a way made it easy in a lot of respects, is that Irish culture is quite similar to African and Caribbean culture. Mm, yeah. <laughs> very similar mentality about things. Very similar. I mean, some, you know, some people I know from Cork, I actually can't tell the difference between them and my Jamaican aunties. Okay. Like, Cause they sound like really <laughs> flipping like similar. Um, so very, very mm, similar yeah. culturally, but because it's very similar culturally. And to be fair, we've got also crossover in histories. Yeah. Yeah. Irish absolutely. And black people. Yeah. Sure. We've got this trauma. There's a lot of shame. A lot of secrecy. There's yeah. a lot of keeping up appearances. Mm. There's this weird conservatism, but also at the same time, getting up to all sorts behind closed doors. We, we, we got a complicated. Very complicated, um, yeah. History. And so there's grief and there's relief. Because mm. you didn't have that sense of safety at any point during your childhood by the sound of things. No. No, our, you know, the the safety of your home environment. It wasn't a safe zone at no. all for you. So... The idea of never seeing your mother again, how does that sit with you? I mean, I'm sure you've done a lot of work mm-hmm. on that to get okay with the point that you're saying enough now. But to physically never see her again, you've, you've made peace with that. Yeah, I've had 40, 46 years of grieving in, in various different ways. And I said this, funny enough, um, about dad when he passed. And we were in a good place when he passed, but we had had four years of estrangement. Uh, up until 10 months before he passed. And it's it's difficult when you have parents who don't really like to deal with stuff and who will cut you off in a huff and let it just rumble on and on. And I was in a similar way with him. I just went, ah, oh, geez, 
like, I'm not going to be chasing him down about this. And and I said, you know, I'm just going to leave things be. And next thing you know, is four years has gone by and he has cancer. And we reconnected, didn't really get explanations or whatever, but we had our peace. But one of the things I said, I remember posting on Instagram after he died, because for if you think about, obviously, you know, my work with baggage reclaim. Yeah. I'd done my first book. Around, well, was, what's that, 2011, Mr. Unavailable and a Fallback Girl. And so and a lot of people who've read my work are familiar with the complicated relationship with my dad because really he's the first Mr. Unavailable in my life. And I said, you know, he's died, but I have grieved this man a million times over. And a lot of people understood yeah. that. And it's a similar thing with my mom. Like, it's sad in a way to know that you just have to draw your line with that. I just cannot be open to that. And at the same time, I have been grieving this my entire life. Yeah. And so it's not, and I don't mean this in a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like sort of dismissive way, but it's not hard. It's not hard because I've, <laughs> I've had plenty, <laughs> I've had plenty of practice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and you know what, for people listening who, who perhaps have a good relationship with parents and this to them, this idea is alien. I suppose you really have to go back to if something is causing you damage mm-hmm. and it was causing you damage, the relationship, mm-hmm. the dynamic yeah. um, was not positive at all. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there were positive elements, yes. but the, the negative outweighed uh, the positive. You know, we do have to start as individuals at some point in our lives start to mind ourselves so that then we can live better and the people around us in our circle yeah. can also benefit from that because if we keep putting up with the stuff that isn't mm-hmm. good what signal are you sending out to everybody else particularly in your case you've you've teenage yeah, yeah. teenage daughters um uh, yeah absolutely i uh, you know the thing i would say and this you know of course it applies to family but it applies to any relationships listen i have evolved so much over the last 18 years yeah. in particular since you know I started baggage reclaim since I went on my health journey you know since I started to create healthy boundaries actually where are you at with your health now I'd just be curious I know you said tinnitus and obviously you know that doctor had said look if you don't do it you know once you hit your 40s mm. it might be yeah. you know good night sooty and here you are 45 yeah 45 46 in July okay and rolling fast you're like, you know, you look, and I know yeah. that can be deceptive, but you certainly look like the picture of health. Where are you at now? So uh, that appointment was in August 2005. And by the April 2006, I was declared in remission. Wow. Um, Fantastic. From, and, and I mean, they were just like, uh, okay. And I've remained, touch wood, yeah. in remission um, ever since. I had to go for... Initially six months checks, then yearly checks. I get put under a consultant for everything as a result of okay. having had it. I when I when the pandemic was on, I was in that's you know, you in the group of people where it was like you have to get uh, you know, early vaccination. What was interesting is seeing on a system that I'd had a, a major systemic illness. And so it flags for everything. And so my health is in a much better place in the sense of like I don't live in fear of sort of uh, relapsing as such into that because, of course, my life has moved on emotionally. I've been processing a lot of trauma, but I have over the last nine years grappled with tinnitus, something that I started as a child when I was like seven, Mm. six or six, seven. 
came back about nine years ago and I realized that it, I think there's a spiritual aspect. You know, I'm a big believer in the connection between emotional health and physical health. Me too, uh, for sure. And so I realized that it's, you know, we can work on ourselves and we're always going to deep, deeper and deeper levels. We mm. we grieve things, we receive things into our life, we grieve some more things, but also the more we kind of get in touch with ourselves, the more we're sort of peeling back. And so the thing that I have, I think, been working through over the last nine years is the listening to myself because I was somebody who can demand a lot of myself. And tinnitus has become like an alarm in my body that's going, you need to slow down, you need more sleep, you're doing too much, you're going too hot, whatever it might be, you need to listen to yourself. Sometimes it feels like all I flip and do is listen to myself. I don't have tinnitus all the time, like 24 seven. And it's certainly in a much better place than it was, you know, a few years back. In fact, I've had periods of like not having it. Um, But at the moment I still do have it. And I think it's because I'm also perimenopausal and on HRT at flipping 40 bloody five, which I never thought would be the case. And so I think it's partly hormonal. Yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And so I'm in an interesting phase of where for all intents and purposes, my health is in a pretty good place. And also I am grappling with like perimenopause and, 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 and sort of trying to figure out what it is my body wants out of me. Yeah. Trying to be patient with myself. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And what you said there about, you know, the link is something I'm absolutely very much on the same page with as well. And I think the body is always communicating to us. And always. It's, it's trying to, you know, it's a messenger, I suppose. And it's, it's 
as you said, it's 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 sending the signals to you to, you know, listen. And now you're listening, but it's because of the years where perhaps you weren't in a place to listen mm-hmm. and you kept shutting off that voice that wanted to speak to you. Yeah. And I think that something, you know, this phase of our lives, you know, if, if you're in your 40s, you know, as a woman, likely going to be coming up against, for instance, perimenopause and then eventually menopause. Mm. And what those do is they force you to figure out where you need to say no, because yeah. your body, I can't do all the things that I like being in bed, you know, at half eight, nine o'clock. Yeah. Like I was out for dinner with a friend last night and I had a couple of margaritas. I didn't even drink both. I think I only had like barely half of the second one. And so I went to bed about 11 o'clock last night and it felt late. Yeah. And I'm like, I used to go out six nights a week. I mean, a friend of mine and I, we were laughing the other day saying, Do you remember when we used to go out like six nights a week and we were always down in buskers in Temple Bar? Like yeah. just mad jokes like all the time. <laughs> now, one night and I'm like, oh Jesus, I need a, I need a good early <laughs> night, like the next sort of couple of days. But I can't do all the things. But we get frustrated with ourselves yeah. because it's like, well, I used to be able to do that. Well, you can't. Yeah. It's different now. You, where are you now sort of with yourself? And so yeah. I think that. What I have had to come face to face with in my 40s is realizing that I never learned about limits when I was growing up. So, you know, I have friends who had people around and it would say, no, that's too much. Slow down. You know, that's enough. Whereas I got a lot of, no, you need to do more. Keep going. Like, and if you said that you were tired, well, what are you being lazy for? You need to try harder. And so what's happened is, is that I've obviously internalized a lot of that. And bear in mind that culturally, I think that a lot of that pressure, for instance, that our parents would have put on us and and messages about not being lazy and all this type of stuff is because of what Irish and, for instance, African and Caribbean people went through where we were constantly accused of being lazy. And we felt like we had to work extra hard in order to make sure that we were booking up against those stereotypes. And we were also dealing with things like discrimination and all sorts of stuff. And so our parents have then instilled in us, no, flipping, get on with it. Don't be flipping lazy because they want us to have the things that they didn't have. They want us to survive in this world, but it means that we don't get to learn about limits. Yeah. And so that's why we're also the generation that burns out, you know, Mm. big time. Yeah. uh, Because we never learned about limits. And I had this realization from burning out a couple of times, like, who? starts the year not running and everyone's a marathon like four months later like that's me okay like okay. I just I yeah. go too hard sometimes all or nothing about, yeah demanding too much of myself and 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 what I do is I I I I can demand a lot of myself and it's like right get on with it and so then my body stops me in my tracks because it's like okay you you can demand a lot of yourself and you can push yourself and I get it done but maybe you shouldn't mm. And so you have to pay attention to the body's signals because it's, you know, I I say this in the book as well, you know, it's like the equivalent of running multiple amber and red lights that your body is actually trying to call your attention in more subtle ways. And we're so busy and we could be busy parenting or working or just living our lives and rushing all over the place. And our body has tried to get our attention in smaller ways and then eventually it gets it in a big way because it's the only way to stop us in our tracks and make us pay attention and finally take care of ourselves. And that's when we also are forced to say no. Yeah. Do you know, it's funny because the the stuff that you write about um, and particularly in your new book, The Joy of Saying No, is 
they're topics that come up a lot in this podcast and mm. I'm obviously drawn to them mm-hmm. because it's where I'm at in my own life as well. Um, and I mean, it's been kind of slowly happening since my early-ish 30s, but it's kind of ramped up in the last few years, particularly I think since becoming a mother, I've realized the importance of it, not just for me, but if I don't do the work for myself, then I'm going to be, I suppose, um, you know, bringing that into their lives. And I certainly don't want that mm-hmm. situation of them not like, so sometimes say, for example, my son, he's nearly six and, you know, I'm scolding him because he's being defiant and I'm struggling to self-regulate. Sometimes I get it right. And sometimes I don't. Yeah. And there's a sense of guilt afterwards. And why'd you do that? But there have been times when I've got cross and he'll give it back to me tenfold. And <laughs> in the I moment I'm like fit to, but then actually there's a bigger sense behind it of pride. Yes. I love the fact that he's able to stand up to me and say no. Because even though, as I said, in the moment you're like, just do the thing. Yeah, yeah. But he's well able to stand up to me and he's not scared of me. Yeah, because that's, I think that, you know, our parents' generations and the one before them, they, they did love to rule us with fear, mm. you know? Yeah. And, you know, in the book, I talk about how we're all raised in the age of obedience where the communicating, disciplining and interacting with children centered on making children basically as obedient, you know, excessively compliant as possible. And the, what we have to understand is that when you teach your children to be compliant to a fault, like unquestionably compliant, yeah. not only do they become disassociated from their bodies, so they have no sense of their needs, desires, expectations, feelings, and opinions. They literally can't feel out who they are, what they need, what they want, and so forth. But it also means that why would you think that you could teach your child to be unquestionably, unquestionably compliant, you know, obedient with authorities, and then expect that when they get into work or when they get into, for instance, their various interpersonal relationships when they're older, that they'll just suddenly Become understand. Assertive. Yeah, suddenly be assertive. They won't because yeah. they, you, any person that we then feel we sort of creates that sense of power over us, that sense of fear in us that we've learned to associate with that will cause us to be like, okay, I'll go along with it. That's why then we wind up in abusive relationships. That's why we don't stand up to the dodgy coworker or to the boss. You know, that's why we might have a toxic friendship or we struggle with a family member. Yeah. And it's funny, it's, it can start as innocently, can't it, as, mm-hmm. you know, a visitor comes to the house, you know, say hi to such, such, or give such, such a hug. Yeah. Oh my it's gosh. It's all of that stuff. The hug thing. Give, give you one, blah, 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 hug. No, we don't want to. Yeah. You know, but we used to get into trouble yeah. for that. As but kids. I've, I've even, I have to admit, disclaimer, I, those words have come out of my oh, yeah. own mouth. And you catch yourself and you go, and you're going, what uh, yeah. have I just said? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, like you, you know, in particular with our second, like she'd be the same. She get, really gives as good as she gets. But actually we wanted our children to have autonomy. We want to have respect. You know, my husband, he's Sierra Leonean, mm. born in England, but Sierra Leonean. And he's, you know, he can be very, African dad like all the respect and then he's like oh actually like you don't want your children to one be fearful of you and two to be unquestionably obedient so he wants to have that dialogue but then it's also it it feels like a delicate balance sometimes where you you want to have the respect you don't want to be like oh me and you are homies because we're not we're parents and sure and child but it needs to be a two-way dialogue when we were growing up it typically was a one-way yeah uh dialogue and we are pleased when 
our daughters turn around and say, actually, I don't like that or I don't feel comfortable. You could get in trouble when we were younger for just not even liking the furniture. But you're ungrateful, so-and-so. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. And and the thing is, we need to, it, it's a trial and error. Like, I've been like you, you know, like where you let rip. And then I burst into tears afterwards because I'm like, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? Yeah. And you feel like, oh, my God, I'm repeating, repeating the past. And it's like, <laughs> talk about dramatizing it. It really ain't that deep. Actually, do you know what? One of the greatest gifts you can give your kids? Apologize. Yes. Explain. And not in a, you made me do it. I only did this because I love you. Because that's another thing from our parents' generation as mm. well. I wouldn't do this to you if, you if you'd only blah, blah, blah. Apologize. Yeah, Explain. Because that's something that's very absent from a lot of our upbringings is having a, a parent unequivocally apologize, sit down with us and have a dialogue. I couldn't come home and say, oh, such and such is going out with blah, blah, blah. With that next... You better not be trying to get with boys. You better not be trying to get pregnant, you know, coming in here, bringing no baby. Mate, I just told you that somebody else has got a boyfriend. How have I managed to get into this? Thankfully, things are changing. And it's not about necessarily blaming that generation either, no. because there was a sense of them not knowing any different. And it was also the kind of the cultural norm, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the survival. Like it's, we were raised in the age of obedience. Our parents were raised in the, in the age of obedience, as were their grandparents. What is this age now for the kids nowadays? So what? I think that this supposed to be getting is the age of autonomy, you know, the, mm. you know, the, the age of, and, and it's a wrestle. I mean, when you, when you look at the things we're grappling with in the world, you know, loneliness crisis, yeah. mental health crisis, you know, all the various scandals that have come out over the years, uh, you know, high suicide rates, the list goes on, you know, the self-harm, all of those things. This is the trauma of this obedient past that we've had people being something that they're not, not listening to themselves, not being able to have boundaries. And when you're so disconnected from yourself, then of course these things are going to come up. And so I think we are, maybe it is the age of autonomy or, you know, is it the age of boundaries? I think we are getting to a place of where the self doesn't mean selfish. Yeah. Which I think, you know, we had a lot of those messages growing up. Like if you, if you, if you, if you don't want to be forced to share something, now you're selfish and spoiled, Mm. Mm. you know, don't be mean, don't be greedy, be nice, be sweet, be meek, be mild, don't be a slut, don't be this, don't be that. It's like, come on, can we can we speak to our children? Can, actually, can we speak to adults? Can we treat each other in a better way? Mm. I, I'm a great believer that if everybody had just even a little bit more boundaries, we would live in an entirely different world. In fact, I always say that if if a lot of people cut back, even a little bit on people pleasing, the whole system of work would collapse because the whole culture of work is based on exploiting people pleasers. Yeah. Yeah, wow. But it, it, when you think about it, yeah. who, who were companies making their money from? The ones who were scared to say no. The ones who want to prove themselves. The ones who are like, oh, I'll stay behind. I'll do the thing. I'll volunteer. I won't query things. That's how a lot of companies are making their money. It's not a good way to be making money. This treating people like they're machines and just demanding loads of them and exploiting the power imbalance boundaries i i hope people are getting a better sense if they're kind of new to setting them in place in their own lives because it can be scary yeah to do something different that you've never done before um but certainly boundaries really lead to respect don't they yeah i mean the the whole thing even if they're very hard for those that you put a boundary in place with to accept and they might not like it or want it but actually ultimately it does lead to more respect if somebody eventually 
gets it as to why you put it in place. Yeah. And if they don't get it, you're still in a better off place because you're not as exposed to whatever it is that's creating the issue between you. And it's important for us to remember that a lot of people associate boundaries with being confrontational, you know, conflict, saying no, ruling others. Our yes is as much of a boundary as no is like mm. they're, they're, they're connected to each other. What you say yes to means that you're saying no to other things. What you say no to means that you're saying yes to other things. And, you know, something else I say as well is that yes and no are like the heart and lungs. They work together to pump oxygen rich blood around the body. And when one is compromised, it affects the other. And that means that actually learning to say no is a way of growing our relationships. It's also a way of releasing ourselves from the past because the only reason we're not saying no is because of the past is because of trauma is because of whatever we think has happened to make us scared of saying no in the first place but if you want intimacy if you actually want love care trust and respect in your relationships if you want to be you know more of who you really are you know feel like comfortable safe in yourself no is the way to that because if you're saying yes all the time you're lying so yeah, yeah like, nobody wants to say yes all the time. They just don't. Mm. And yes commits us to stuff. And, you know, we're running around saying yes willy nilly. Next thing you know, we're, you know, stuffed up to the hilt with a whole load of stuff that we don't want to do. And so no lets us be responsible and it lets us respect ourselves. It lets us choose the things that really matter to us. It lets us choose ourselves and the relationships that we want. I'd love to talk about people pleasing because you break it down in the book in a brilliant way where you say that we have a style. If we're a people pleaser, Mm -hmm. we normally fall into one of these styles or maybe a combination of five different styles. Can Mm -hmm. you talk us through them? Yeah. So the five styles are gooding, efforting, avoiding, saving and suffering. So the names in and of themselves uh, sort of indicate what we're using to, to please others and what we're motivated by, like what drives us. So with gooding, We are driven by wanting to look good, to appear like we're being good. So, you you know, the quintessential good girls, good guys, good something. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good Catholic. I'm a good something, Mm -hmm. good wife, good mother, whatever. All about the optics. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much about the optics. And so it's would do things to please to try to kind of let people think that about us because we think that that will help us to sort of move through life. Efforting, which is my very dominant style of people pleasing is you use your efforts to please. It wouldn't be enough for the optics for, for somebody with Mm. this style. We are like the more effort you make is the better that makes you as a person is the more likely it is that you're going to get what you want. It's a way to protect ourselves. And so we are the perfectionists. We are the people also most likely to burn out. There's a part of us that is very, our identity is tied to effort. So it's like, Oh, I have to perform. Um, and as a result, I think that, uh, we use effort to try to control situations. And so we can be surprised when things don't go our way. We'll be the first to go, but I've, I've made so much effort. I've tried so hard. I just don't feel like I'm enough. We're avoiding, which I think is the one that a lot of people were like, oh my God, like I did not see that coming. Avoiding is using avoiding typically conflict but really avoiding anything that we think is going to cause discomfort to others as a way to be pleasing in a relationship and a very typical example I give of this is that you might be for instance in a romantic relationship and they're like what do you like I like what you like what do you want to do I want to do what you want to do you'll go along with stuff and then 
when you're ready to maybe speak up about something, there's a part of you that goes, well, I've, I've gone along with stuff and I always do what you want to do. So why are you querying things? But it's also this sense of like, oh, there's this big dirty family secret that nobody wants to talk about. There's this big elephant in the room. Fine. I'll avoid all of that. I'll make myself in pain over that. And as a result, I'll please all of you guys. Only it means that you become this very avoidant person who doesn't deal mm-hmm. like with their feelings. And then it's like, but I've done all this stuff. I've avoided saying this stuff. I avoided having a conflict. Why are you starting this thing with me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Push it down, push it down. Yeah, push it down, push it down. I certainly, it's funny, as you're speaking, I think we can all either see ourselves or, or somebody we know. Or someone we know yeah, in, in the like situations, yeah. That, that's, I think, for a lot of people, because I say, look, this is as much about recognising that we all have baggage and we've yeah, all got sure, things course. that are coming up for us because... It might suddenly click into place with you why a certain person in your life does mm. things in a particular way that maybe is typically grated on your nerves. Uh, saving, which I think a lot of people associate with people pleasing, are for the fixers, helpers of this world, rescuers. Mm. The ones who are like, oh, you know, they're driven by this need to be needed. And they often see themselves as being very well intentioned and like, I just want to help. But underneath all of that is needing to be needed in order to feel worthy and also kind of playing the rescuer and the helper because on some level you think that doing all this stuff will heal something in you like will you know will fix something in you also it's control if you if you always for instance you know in, in my time of writing i've heard from a lot of you know what i call florence nightingales yeah. they always pick up the waifs and strays of the dating world, they you know kind of want to build them up, turn them into something else. Let me fix everything about you, and then the person skips on off to somebody else once they've sort of been you know fixed the mm. by them. And they're like, "But I did all these things to help the person." Yes, but you were motivated by something else, you know, sort of underneath that. And savers they burn out too because they give too much. They're the overgivers of this world, and so they're not very boundaried with their helping and their support. And last but not least is the suffering style, which is basically, and I think that, you know, culturally, I'd say very much applies very strongly in Ireland. This sense of the more you suffer, the better that makes you as a person. Mm. And so it's like, I bleed for you. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, I'll just keep tolerating the shit. I'll just let, you know, let you keep doing whatever that is. Let it all keep flying at me. And hopefully at some point you'll realize that I'm in like great distress and be like, okay, finally, I'll reward you Mm. with what it is that you need. And instead, they just bleed out. Yeah. And sometimes people arrive at suffering because they've kind of fallen on their sword of one of the other styles and they've just really kind of got into this sort of, and I'm always careful with using this term, but this victim mentality. And what I mean by that is, of course, we are victims of different things that happen to us. But when you get into a place where, your identity is about suffering yeah. and this idea that like you have to feel bad. You are not going to allow yourself to be in a situation where you don't get to feel that way. So you end up being, because it would go completely against the identity of being the sufferer. So of course you're not going to be in a healthier situation. You're going to latch on to people who will exploit you. Yeah. Yes. Exploit you and, and just feed into the, the same destructive pattern yes yeah and you know the thing i would say is look you might see yourself in more than one i am very strongly you know an effort my style is very efforting but i would also say there's particularly the avoiding yeah is in there for me as well like i was used to be deathly afraid of conflict yes and so you know 
you have to look at what am I sort of building my identity around it. And a good place to know really where you are with people pleasing is when somebody pisses you off, when life does not go the way mm. you want it to, what's the typically the thing that you tend to focus on? Is it like, oh, but I've been so good. I've been so nice. Why don't they like me? Then you know that your style is gooding. If you're like me, where the first thing you think is, but why wasn't enough? I, I've tried so hard. I've you know, there's the efforts in there. Right. Yeah. If it's like, but I, if there's some form of like, but I didn't, I tried to like not say that thing or not do that thing. You know, it's avoiding. If it's like, well, I was just being well-intentioned because, you know, the savers of this world tend to be like, oh, I, I, I had good intentions, you know. Yeah. If you don't make your intentions, if it's like, well, I've just been so helpful and so supportive. All I've done is I just meant well, to, I meant well. I meant well, I meant well. You know, your style is, is that one. And if you're like, I always get the shitty end of the stick type of talk and yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. I'm always suffering, then you know that that's you. Oh, Natalie, it's great stuff, isn't it? Um because I, I suppose, I don't know, I don't know if I'm a fully recovered or still in recovery, people pleaser. Um, I didn't even realise I was that much of a people pleaser, if I'm perfectly honest. A lot of people don't. Yeah. But I certainly know that boundaries were not something that I knew even existed years ago. Yeah. It's like, I'm not allowed to have a boundary. What? Yeah. Boundary? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. That's, that's literally a Boundaries? Yeah. Nope. No mention of boundaries, <laughs> feelings, needs, values. Those things weren't talking. What are you talking about? Yeah, boundaries. boundaries. Get outside and play and stop <laughs> getting on my nerves. Yeah. I'll give you something to be boundaried about. <laughs> I know, I mean, we're laughing, but it is, but you know what I mean? It is, you know, it's, it's, it is serious also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, that was just not just in the conversation. If you talked about feelings back in the day, it was like, what are you, what are you saying that for? Yeah. You have people thinking it was mad. You have something John got this one. <laughs> What? Because I'm talking about my feelings. You know, what, what do the neighbours yeah. think? That is like very, very classic. What, yeah. what will the neighbours think about what? Yeah. Oh, oh you, oh, you want that, do you? When I was your age, I didn't even have any clothes. I didn't have shoes. But you were just going around naked, were you? <laughs> like they're unreal. Yeah. But yeah, that's, yeah. of course, that's the trauma of their generation. Yes, like, of course. It's their own self-protection, why yeah. they didn't want us to feel our feelings. Yeah. But it is no wonder that we don't know about boundaries and, and these things. And I would say, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't, I, I don't think I have a problem with boundaries. And I say, do you say no? Uh, oh, I don't know about that. Or how do you feel when somebody else says no to you? Wounded? Rejected? Oh, yeah. Dejected? Yeah, 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 you have a problem with boundaries. If you have a problem with other people's no, you have a problem with your own oh, one as well. And that's actually a great point to make because it's not just about you saying no, it's how you receive if somebody else sets a boundary in place with you because it can feel really uncomfortable when you're not used to it. Yeah. I'm definitely getting more used to it now and realise how healthy it is. Um, but it, it is work. It is work having to do it. But I've noticed that a lot of people receiving um, my boundary, whether it's a yes or a no, depending on the situation, is a it's a there's a sense of shock. What? No, what? Yeah. what is look, this? What, what's, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, and, and the thing I say to people is, if you only ever try to voice a boundary once, if you think that you can like just like be saying yes willy nilly for God knows how long, and then you can be like, oh, you're going to leap out of bed now, and be like, right, I have boundaries today. And you turn around and say to the person, no. What you think that the the angels and that are going to come out, the harps are going to start playing, and they're going to go, "Oh my gosh, thank you so much for setting your boundary <laughs> with me." Oh my gosh, I didn't realize. Okay, that's fine. That's delusion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we need to stop trying to control other people's reactions to it because other people's responses to our boundaries is about their stuff. 
Yes. And if we only have the boundary once, we don't really get to, one, see that boundary play out because you only have it once. And so then the person's confused the next time when you do something completely contradictory to that. And so you have to keep going with it, you know, with respect. You don't need to, like, I think a lot of people think, oh, having boundaries is like screaming at people. You can't blah, 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 blah. When the, the best example I give of a boundary is if I come to you and I say, what's your name? And you say, it's Sheila. And I turn around and go, all right, Shelley. Immediately, you, you communicated a boundary to me when you told me what your name is. If I turn around and I start calling you Shelley or Sheely or whatever, I'm overstepping a boundary there. That's as simple as it is. We are literally our boundaries. And what because of our conditioning, we're overcomplicating it. And we're making it about, oh, a boundary is a bad thing. It's like selfish. You're trying to like rule people. People are going to leave you. For what? Like just showing up as yourself. So everything you do and don't do, everything you say and don't say is a communication of your boundaries. Like we are the living embodiment of our boundaries. And as soon as we realize that, it's like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, because if it's as simple as my name is Sheila, how is there anything wrong with you saying your name is Sheila? And if the person turns around and says, oh, I want to call you Shelly, well, tough tits. <laughs> you know, you you have your house. Yeah. And maybe, and, and I think that culturally, again, it'd be a similar thing. It's like, take your shoes off when, when you come in the house. Maybe you've got new carpets, maybe you've got new floors or whatever. Person comes in, I don't, I want to keep my shoes on in your house. It's not your flipping house. Yeah. If you want to wear shoes, then do it. How is, how is it bothering you so much to take off your shoes when you come in my house? But the person is saying something about their respect of some basic boundaries. If they can't, be open to you having a no. Like there's no relationship that we can have in this life where if we can't have a disagreement because disagreements are part of intimacy, mm. obviously not disagreements or disagreements sake or abusive relationships, but I'm saying sure. if you, a, a conflict is a sign of intimacy in a relationship. It says you're willing to go there. It says you're willing to say no. And until you've had boundaries, until you're willing to be honest about your yes and your no, then you don't have an intimate relationship with the person in question. And in fact, you might not even have an intimate relationship with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Natalie, it's great to talk to you. I've teased out a number of, of, of kind of topics in the book. You've given us a real sense of you and your backstory and, and why you are the person you are and you write the way you do. Um, but the book is, is fantastic. There's so much more in it. So I urge you, if you're connecting with what Natalie is saying, to go and get it. It's called The Joy of Saying No. You speak about things like the difference between a hard no and a soft no, which I love. Yeah. Because actually, I realized that actually I certainly in the past would have very much been guilty of the soft no, the fluff, the over explaining, yeah. you know, the no rather than just politely saying no and yeah. maybe giving a line or two, but I would over, over, over. You pretend to like story to say no. And yeah. it's like, mate, are you telling me no? Yeah, and like, then they don't know where, where you're at with it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, you speak about the power of pause, so many different things. Well, essentially, really, what it's all about is getting in tune with ourselves and honoring ourselves first and foremost mm-hmm. so that we can live better, healthier lives and therefore those around us will benefit from that better version of ourselves. 100%. Like, no, finally starting to say no will grow your relationships. And anybody who can't handle your no, you know, if they're going to flip their wig when you turn around and say no, that's telling you that your no was overdue. They're far too used to you going along with things. And no will help you to get to a more honest, joyful place in your life. Like, I am who I am today because I started to say no. Like I had to say no to a whole load of stuff, you know, say no in the consultant's office, saying no to 
flipping shady exes and dodgy guys saying no to family and drawing my line because my health was a big priority. And it was through that that I welcomed in like loving relationships, like my relationships overall. Okay, fine. You know, a few months ago, I've you know stepped away from my mom, but overall my relationships, family, friends, who I am as a mother, my work in life, that's come as a result of me learning to say no. And it's an ongoing process. Like I'm, you know, I call myself a recovering people pleaser. There are different things that are going to come up in life. You will be presented with yeses and nos, and you got to figure that out, you know, and that's all part of it. We don't have to get it perfectly. We can, you know, tweak and refine as we go, figure it out as we go along. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation and it's been so good to meet you in person. Yeah, so good to meet you in person as well, Sheila. Thank you for having me. Natalie's book, The Joy of Saying No, is available in all good bookshops and online. Thank you so much for listening to Ready To Be Real. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 